0: mm <laughs> I was doing
1: a lot of things in undergrad that sort of influenced me to kind of get where I'm at today. You need to have a good attitude, a little bit of courage, and a good work ethic. There are so many problems I would want to solve. My top two would be healthcare, having universal healthcare,
2: and having housing. Today's episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird Inc., where digital healthcare is their niche. Whether you're looking to implement remote patient monitoring in-house, start a chronic or principal care management program, or even leverage telehealth to optimize the delivery of care and outcomes for your patients and team, Chirpy Bird Inc. can help. They offer results-based solutions for practices and health systems to support docs and patients during this uncertain time. You can find them and all of their services online at chirpybirdinc.com.
0: Hey there, and welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast, where we're dedicated to amplifying the career journey, accomplishments, and lessons learned of women everywhere. I'm your host, Joy Rios. And I'm your other host, Robin Roberts. During the day,
2: together we run a health IT consultancy known as Trippy Bird Inc., where we get to geek out on all things healthcare, technology, and policy. But along the way, Joy noticed that so many women were running organizations, but too few were leading or being recognized. So we decided to change that. Together, we're learning about the puzzle that is healthcare and sharing what we find with you, our listeners. You can expect us to be talking with some pretty badass women, We will even be exploring how the pandemic is impacting many of their professional lives this season. We've
0: also formed a private community of both guests and listeners over on Slack to help make connections, offer support to one another, and share the resources we come across. If you want to join us, check out our website at hitlikeagirlpod.com forward slash community. Community shoutouts this week go to Christina and Leslie, the newest pod members. We also had a lively Martini Monday event recently where we got to network in a casual way after a long day of work and share our ongoing lessons learned about how to effectively advocate for women in our organizations. So high fives all around for that. All right, enough already. There
2: are too many awesome women to talk with. Let's get started.
0: This week, we share our conversation with Patricia Pinkholm, who is a recent grad of Duke University, where she triple majors, whoa, in evolutionary anthropology, African and African American studies, and visual media studies. She is both a firefighter and a paramedic, as well as an aspiring physician. She's a strong advocate for women in fire and emergency medical services, and we learned a lot from our conversation with Patricia, and think you will too. So let's get started. Thank you, Patricia, for joining us today. We are really excited to get to know you and your journey. You have a background that is unique compared to all of the other guests that we've had on the show. So if you wouldn't mind, could you please take a moment to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you and the career path that you're on?
1: Sure. So I always start with saying that I'm a first-generation college grad. Both my parents are immigrants and uh, neither of them went to college. That kind of inspired me to do something, to do something more with my education, saying that they didn't have the opportunity to go for higher education made me want to learn as much as I can. So I did my undergrad at Duke in North Carolina and I came in and I knew I wanted to do medicine, but I wasn't sure how I was going to get there. I ended up triple majoring in evolutionary anthropology, African and African American studies, and visual media studies. And I actually tied all those three majors together by doing some research under the Mellon Mace program, which allowed me to look at the history of medical experimentation and control of the black female body. So I did that for two to three years, my undergrad, and I actually graduated with distinction. So, I was doing a lot of things in undergrad that sort of influenced me to kind of get where I'm at today. And so, while I was doing all of this, I was also in paramedic school and I was actually working as an ER tech. So, I would be an undergrad and then I would, on the weekends, go to paramedic school and be amazed that medicine could change people's lives, that literally increased their quality of life. And I just started diving into that more and more and more until I eventually became a firefighter and paramedic. So right now I work as a career firefighter and paramedic with the hopes and dreams of becoming an MD-PhD. So that's where I'm at right now. I'm actually in a post back. So that's sort of what my professional journey has been
0: like. Okay, I have a couple questions off the bat.
1: <laughs> sure.
0: <laughs> One, I thought that, okay, so can you tell me more about African-African studies is African 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 American at first when I saw that I thought it was a typo what exactly is that can you sure so it's African and
1: African American studies and that basically just looks at the history of black bodies in the U.S. in different regions of the world as well my specific concentration was black Americans so I would look at the history of science, basically, as it kind of focused on Black Americans. So that includes the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, that includes the eugenics movement and forced sterilization. That sort of major itself is very history focused. So all the topics you think about in African, African-American studies, slavery, the Reconstruction era, the civil rights, that kind of is what it covers. Does that
0: answer your question? No, absolutely. And I actually, I want to follow up with some of the medical history stuff. Is there any sort of high level sharing that you can do around what you've learned? And you just mentioned a couple of them, but for folks who are maybe less familiar With Mm -hmm. the medical history is specific to Black women, can you give us, you know, shine a bit of a light on that? Sure. You're a history of science buff, or
1: if you've read uh, Harriet Washington's medical experimentation book, she actually discusses what or how Black female bodies have been viewed in medicine. One example would be the vesicovaginal fistula, which very uh, long-winded there, but essentially in the times of slavery, Black women... They did not have any sort of rights, right? So they didn't have the ability to say yes or no, I want to be in this trial. All I can say really, if I had to shorten it, is that Black women, especially in the times of slavery, they were used without their consent to figure out or develop cures for procedures that they had no idea of what was being done on them.
3: The era of COVID, you know, they were talking about the longstanding inequities in healthcare, but this mm-hmm. time has certainly bubbled a lot of that to the surface and is putting a magnifying glass, a much needed magnifying glass on it at this point in time because there's so much to work to be done for these things. But what you're talking about actually I became better acquainted with. I read a news article. It was J. Marion Sims. They yes. recently took mm-hmm. down a statue. He was had been known or was known as the father of modern gynecology. But the article I saw was not related to a statue being removed, which I think was in the I think it was in the USA Today or something. But prior to that, a piece of artwork that showed an African American woman bound Mm. and other people waiting in line to do exactly what you just described were these gynecological procedures without Mm. anesthesia. And, you know, I think almost any woman today or any of our listeners can say, you know, going even for a well woman exam without anesthesia isn't always a comfortable thing, even in a healthy patient. So I just can't even imagine. But, Patricia, how does all of this stuff show up? You know, you tied it all together under healthcare, but how do these things come into play with what you're doing now as a firefighter paramedic, which is not an easy thing to accomplish because you have the EMS side of this and being a paramedic and those credentials and training combined with really the the firefighting aspect of it, which is kind of two jobs in one in and of itself.
1: How I see sort of this play out in the fire and EMS side, specifically as a paramedic, I give you an example. Whenever I have a, a black woman with chest pain, and I'm with another partner, I'm with another paramedic, and maybe they take the lead and they say, okay, well, this chest pain is reproducible. I'm not going to treat it as if it might be an end semi or something along those lines or something more severe. But realistically, in the EMS protocol, when you actually look at chest pain and you know this person is saying, well, it's radiating in my left arm. Well, I'm a little short of breath. This has never happened to me. And she's saying all those things and My partner's kind of like, well, you know, let's go to the hospital, we'll let them figure it out. But truly, when I think about it, or when I step in as a Black woman and see sort of this kind of care going on, I have to stop and say, okay, well, what's the bias here? My partner, you may think that it's nothing, but if it is something, that becomes a problem. So I sort of see it in the way that Black women's symptoms or what they say that they're feeling aren't taken seriously. And so that and makes just to me clarify for our listeners an NZME yeah.
3: is a myocardial infarction. It is a heart attack, right? So we're talking about yeah. the difference between somebody just having maybe something interpreted as muscle pain versus really a, a significant potentially fatal event, health event.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So that scenario sort of that I'm explaining is an example of how black women and their health issues are not always taken seriously. And I think that if you look back and what we're saying earlier about how, well, black women's bodies were used without consent. Black women's bodies, they had procedures done without anesthetics and their complaints or their voices weren't heard because they were never given the option. So now that there is an option, even though you know they say that they have such and such symptom or they're short of breath, they're not entirely listened to. And part of that is also the belief that, well, black women can or they deal with pain or higher levels of pain and are able to do so without the need for pain medications or anesthetics. So that that's sort of a, a stereotype, a belief that has been in medicine and actually is perpetuated now today in medicine.
0: Yeah, I was going to say it's sort of this carried over implicit bias because if the folks who were starting out with these different experiments were not documenting any sort of pain level or just assumed Mm -hmm. that black women had a higher tolerance for pain, you know, for whatever reason, it's entirely possible that that has actually, that bias has been written in to, or, you know, inadvertently kind of carried through education and the whole medical system like it's not something that's comfortable to look at or reflect upon but it clearly feels like it's there Mm -hmm. so do you feel like can you share with us any sort of anything that you've encountered working in an EMT that has sort of changed anybody's lives or or had a different direction or path based on actually being aware of those biases
1: yes (laughs) so Actually, recently, we were dispatched to an allergic reaction. It was 3 a.m. We arrived, and uh, it's me, the paramedic, and I've got a partner who's an EMT. He's, I, I'm a black woman, and my partner is a white male. So we arrive on scene, and it is a young girl who is in anaphylaxis. and That is a severe allergic reaction. She is to the point where she is not breathing. She's unresponsive, on the ground, foaming at the mouth. and you know, of course, when you've got a scene like that, everyone's frantic. There's a ton of other kids outside. They're like, why aren't you doing anything? Why aren't you fixing her? So, you know, now we have to worry about, okay, well, she's unresponsive. And there's a crowd that could possibly become combative. So, of course, you know, we have, there's certain protocols we follow. So, you know, control the airway, administer epinephrine, which will help reduce that anaphylaxis so that the patient can breathe. But, you know, after all of that, we, we put the patient in the ambulance and my partner, he says, I say, oh, I need to get an IV, which is just sort of to give her more medications to basically help her breathe better, breathe normal to get her vital signs back. So we're in the ambulance and my partner says, are you sure you don't want to just go to the hospital? And what that translates to is you don't have to treat her right now. She's, she has a pulse. She's breathing now. And to me, I thought, well, okay, what's the bias of the situation here? Is it, well, he just kind of wants to go to the hospital or is it because this patient is also, the patient was a black woman? So I wasn't really sure. It's hard to say in some scenarios, what are the biases? Because sometimes they're not, you know, they're not written in bold, right? And it's sometimes it's a guessing game. But in this particular scenario, I wondered, well, if my patient was white, would that make any difference? And so I ended up getting an IV on the patient. I treated the patient to the point where, like I said, on scene, she was not breathing. She was unresponsive. When we got her to the ER, she was talking and she was fine. The attending ER doc said, we're just going to monitor her and give her steroids. And that improvement was due to me fully treating her on scene the way that you know a patient should be treated, regardless of race, gender, or other identities of that patient. So that's just sort of one example where the question was in my mind. Had it been someone else, had it been someone who was not a Black woman, would my partner have said that? Would he have said, okay, well, let's stay on scene and sort of fix the problem a little bit more, give this patient some medications that they need. So that's one example that I can think of right now.
0: Is that something that you actually talk to your partner about? Like, do you talk, is it something that you bring up to him and maybe just like help him be a little bit more aware of things that might not, you know, be at the forefront of his mind or his implicit bias? Sure. So the tricky thing
1: with partners is, especially I work in a big city, work for a big city department, is you don't always have the same partner every day. So with this person, with this partner, I actually did talk to him after and said, you know after we dropped the patient off the hospital and I said, you know, the attending said we did such a good job in treating the patient on scene. I just wanted to let you know that that is normally how it's done. We normally don't just pick up and go unless it's, you know, bad trauma where they, the care they need is a trauma surgeon, not anything sort of anything else medical. So we did have a short conversation. It wasn't anything deep. We didn't talk about implicit bias. We didn't talk about bias. I just said, If we can treat the patient on scene and get them stable, that's what we're going to do.
3: So we also understand, Patricia, you are an aspiring physician. Is that correct? Yes. I'm sure then that, you know, we've heard stories from other guests about how these same kinds of situations exist, even in the medicine, in the halls of hospitals and doctor's offices and, and other care settings. You know, when you think about how you can carry those lessons forward, just give a great example of how you tried to keep it objective, results focused, but doesn't always work out that way. What do you think, what kinds of challenges do you think you're going to face in medicine as a physician? What does that look like and how do we begin, begin to break some of this down, right? And you've, you've just made a great point too. This wasn't a grab and go situation like you do in bad trauma. Those are That's a really bad scenario. There was, Clearly a clear reason to have followed the protocol as you should for any patient. How do we start to make some of this stuff better, especially in healthcare, especially for a patient? Mm -hmm. And this is anaphylaxis, really pretty straightforward example in all things healthcare, especially emergencies.
1: So your question is, how uh, am I going to change it? How do I think it should change is that sort of? Yes, any of it. How do, you, how do you think it should change? What can we do? And
3: especially now as some of the things that are going on in our society and in culture. And just with God, let's just be honest with humans in general right now. How do we begin to have a mindfulness towards these things and work better as a team, even in any care setting in healthcare,
1: to improve? My answer to this is based on my experience, right, in fire and EMS. I think you need a culture shift. I think everyone says that in their industry, but this particular field is ego-driven. And I think part of the ego drive is normal. I think a little ego can be fun. It can say, we're confident, we do our job, we do it well, bring on the next scenario. But the issue with being ego-driven is that it turns into laughing and criticizing versus constructive criticism. And I think it also turns the... There's also sort of a subculture in between that of micro and macro aggressions that it's not just in fire and EMS. I see it, people talking on Twitter about things that they've seen and heard at the hospital that they work at or at other places. And so that's a big thing that needs to change. It's hard to, I'm trying to find the best words for it. So pardon me if there's a few pauses here, but I think the field could use a reboot by valuing more of constructive criticism versus being insulted by it. So like the, the talk I had with my partner afterwards, thankfully he, he recognized, okay, well, in this case, why did I say that we should stay? I think in me talking to him, he sort of picked up, he listened to what I had to say. And I think that was important rather than being insulted. So I think in identifying that, okay, the field is ego-driven, Part of this is a good thing, but the other part is that, well, if we're not listening to each other, if we're not getting each other's feedback versus, you know, sort of the laughing, brushing it off, putting it to the side, oh, it's not a big deal, I think we can make room for a shift in attitude in the field.
0: Something that showed up for me kind of in my personal life is sort of the idea of instead of shifting from like calling people out, as instead thinking about calling them in. And being like, we have this instead. And for me, and I'll share like, you know, we had some family conversations around the time of the BLM protests and whatnot. And Mm -hmm. instead of like cutting out relationships or really kind of holding up a mirror to certain family members, but instead being like, let's have a difficult conversation that is uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and is hard to talk about, but we need to actually be a little bit more self-aware and take on these tough conversations and really be able to look at ourselves. And I know that's hard to do probably as an industry or with an organization, but I think that we're not really in a position to just like exclude everybody. I'm never going to talk to you again because of that way that you showed up on that one day or whatever. But I would imagine, I would imagine that with like a culture of microaggressions, there has to be a way to let people know that what they're doing is offensive and actually has like permanent and is damaging, you know, not just to an individual, but to like kind of the whole organization. I don't know if that is in line with what you were bringing up. Like that's what showed up for me. I think what you said, I definitely agree with.
1: I think having sort of difficult conversations are important and it's hard to do, I think in fire and EMS because A lot of us are quick to brush things off, right? Or a lot of us are quick to, okay, I just want to relax. I don't want this on my mind. This is hard work. We already do enough hard work every day. And when we go home, we do hard work at home as well. But the conversations need to happen, whether we're nervous or not. I've had several experiences where someone is yelling at me on scene and it's just not appropriate. And then after, everything that happened on scene, I wait, you know, I'm done with my chart, the patient's dropped off, the truck is clean, then I go and talk to them because it's important. It doesn't matter if my heart's racing. It's an important conversation because it takes talking to one person and having that shift so that they don't do it to another person and another person. And then it's sort of like the trickle down effect of, well, if you don't address it, then it just continues to be a problem. And the leadership of an organization also reflects that sort of, because everything is top down, right? So if a captain over here does it to this person, well, they think, well, I'm the lieutenant, so I can do it to this person, and then so-and-so, and it just continues on and on and on. That also contributes to, I think, eating our young. And I think that in firing fire EMS, we do that a lot because it's the trickle-down effect of, well, this one person did it here, they're doing it there, so I'm going to do it. So if you don't stop the domino effect... Right. If you don't talk to that one person, it just continues on. So difficult conversations, just like you said, are important. And I think that I see that as one way to sort of change the culture of the industry.
3: Can I ask a question? Do you think the intersectionality of being a woman who is a paramedic firefighter, firefighter paramedic, excuse mm-hmm. me, How does that show up? Because I understand that even like police is closer to, I think it was like 14 or 15% is what I was reading this morning. And firefighters are even less than that. Mm -hmm. I would imagine that the firefighter paramedic credentials, since that can vary uh, regionally or by state,
1: you know, what, what is that like for you? That can't be easy. It is very, very tough. As someone who is identifies as black female, Latina, Muslim, all those intersections. And people perceive me as just Black and female. They don't see anything else in between. And there are a lot of assumptions about me. For example, when I go to a new station and I introduce myself, I talk to people, they say, oh, you speak so well. I have to pause because it's not, it's not actually a compliment. <laughs> it means that you've made an assumption about me just from looking at me. And that's a problem. And I've had it where people just talk to me and they say, well, they say "Women women can't be or aren't as good as men in this field. And I've had it where, why is that even okay to say? Why do you believe that? Every female paramedic I've been with, every female firefighter I've been with has done 10 times more or studies 10 times as hard than any sort of male firefighters that I know. Or they're just as good, really. But there's this belief that, well, women just aren't as good in this field. And I think there's also this belief that because we're, for the most part, most of us are shorter or smaller than some of our male counterparts who are like 6'5 or 300 pounds, that you know we can't do this job. And that's just not true. You don't need to be brute. You don't need to have a six-pack or all the muscles you need to have a good attitude a little bit of courage and a good work ethic and so every day there's there's always something like on certain calls i arrive and people call me mighty mouse and that's my nickname now because people say oh well you can't lift me or you can't lift that and then i do and then here we are <laughs> i just i do everything that sort of they didn't think could be true. There's a lot that sort of, I'm trying to give you specific examples. One example would be, so we have the academy and the academy, they train you so that you are familiar with the department's protocols, you know, everything about the department and that you're essentially going to be well-trained and able that if they were to put you out in the field on an ambulance by yourself, that you'd be fine. So they, we train in an academy and after the academy, you get a preceptor. And I was told that my preceptor did not believe black women could be educated or intelligent. And I was told that I was going to that specific preceptor because of that belief to get rid of that belief. And so for me in my head, that's a lot of pressure for me to have to prove myself. I just want to treat patients and serve the community. But now I have this in my head that, well, they're sending me to someone to get rid of his, his biases. Right. And the fact that it, that even exists, that he believes in those things, despite it being 2020, despite there being, I'm not the only black paramedic on the job. I'm not the only black firefighter, female firefighter, female paramedic on the job. He still believes those those things.
0: And no pressure. You're not just representing yourself. You're now representing an entire, like, all black women. hmm That's that 's got to be so frustrating, and I can empathize I can empathize with the language i mean my where people were like, "Oh, not necessarily to me, but my ex was from Venezuela, and he would like in all kinds of different settings would get something similar, a conversation around his accent or a lack of an accent and, you know, basically giving him the compliment that he wasn't like the, you know, the other ones and Mm -hmm. all the other ones are essentially his family and (laughs) really is kind of an, like a major insult, which I don't think that people like are aware of. So thank you for sharing all of that because I can only imagine what it, like the courage, as you point out, that it must sometimes take just to even show up. There's just one more example that was very big that I wanted to give. There was a call that
1: it was dispatched as a cardiac arrest. We arrived on scene. Long story short, we got the patient to the ambulance. And as I was stepping into the ambulance, the lieutenant, who was a white male, he was not a paramedic. He was a a firefighter lieutenant. And he stopped me before getting on the ambulance to yell and curse at me about something that I had said and between us arriving on scene and us prior to us leaving on scene, so you have a patient in the back who is actively dying, and this param- this lieutenant pulled me the side before I got on, delaying care so that he could tell me that what I did was wrong and so and to, to yell and curse on scene. so I, I wondered after that scenario, would he have done this had I been a white male? had he had done this if I was not? the way I looked, if I was not a black woman. So those are the things that I think about. It's it's not something that, you know, someone's going to explicitly say to you, but it's something that at the end of the day, you go home, you're like, that doesn't make any sense. You wouldn't have done that had I had occupied different identities. So I think about that a lot. And that's just one example. There's so many, <laughs> there, are, there are so many.
3: That intersectionality of, you know, the background, being a black woman, but also being a woman I was telling Joy earlier this week, I was doing a a training on racism and discrimination and someone really came out and showed several different examples about how they experience racism or aggressions just as a woman, also as a black woman with your religion and your gender and all of these different things, how it can show up almost multiplicatively and sometimes exponentially. So I appreciate your willingness to share those examples because I think about my own example of being yelled at by a superior and cursed at in the hallway while I was like eight months pregnant. I think about certain other things, but not, not with that intersectionality. And so I appreciate your bravery and courage to kind of talk about that more openly, Patricia. Thank you.
0: Hey there. Sorry to interrupt. If you like the vibe of this podcast, you're going to love our private Slack community. It's super supportive, ladies-only pod, where we offer real talk, real advice, and genuine engagement to our members to help them stay inspired and level up. To join, just go to hitlikeagirlpod.com forward slash community. All right, now let's get back to the show. So let's transition to one of our next questions. And I, you know, I'm curious. I've been kind of asking the majority of our guests, how COVID has been affecting their life. Like we've been having a lot of great conversations around how it sort of incentivized either an individual or their company to pivot and kind of change their focus. But you're on the front lines and seeing patients kind of in their most immediate need. Can you speak at all to how, the you know, 2020 and specifically like with COVID, how has it affected your day-to-day working you're just work and how you show up and how it's affected being an EMT? First, I didn't feel
1: too much emotions toward COVID or what was going on. I knew, you know, I had to stay inside more, couldn't really interact with my friends the way I wanted to. And then things became more about Zoom and online. And I I kind of adjusted to that. Then, you know, four months in, it, it felt very, everything felt distant. It felt like I wasn't connected to anyone So that was definitely tough on my mental health. I definitely had periods where I just felt sad. I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to go to work. I didn't want to, you know, as much as I wanted to interact with people, I also didn't want to interact with them. So that has sort of been tough. And I had to dial back, do a little bit of self-care, figure out, okay, well, this is going to be long-term. So how how am I going to work around this? How often do I need to Zoom my family or FaceTime them? How many books do I need to to buy to keep myself occupied? So that's sort of how I've dealt with it personally. And the professional space, as far as work, work has always sort of been work doing the same thing every day. So it hasn't been, nothing has changed too significantly outside of certain protocols that tell us that we need to, we need to wear a mask. We need to have such and such equipment on scene to prevent COVID. But that that's sort of the mental health aspect of it. I um I think when I think about COVID and how it affects me, I actually think about a scenario that I had recently with a patient. We were dispatched to a man down, it ended up just being someone who was sitting on the street, someone had called for them, and really they just wanted to go to a shelter, but they didn't know where the shelter was. So, you know, as 911, we we take people to the hospital, we don't take people anywhere else outside of that, but we didn't end up walking this guy to a shelter, which was just a few blocks down. What ended up happening was because of COVID, they had precautions. So I think it was it was late at night and they said they weren't accepting anyone else for that, that day. And then even if he came back tomorrow, he might not be able to have a place to stay because of the precautions and everything like that. So it, it was sort of, when I think of COVID and I think of how I'm feeling, I think about it in relation to my patients because- I have a job. I'm very thankful to have a roof over my head and to have certain things and to have enough to eat. But I think about the people who are on the street and who don't have what I have and that affects me. And so in that scenario, we, we had to figure out something for him and it ended up working out, but he didn't have a place for that night. So that is probably the impact that I've been feeling sort of what, you know, people who don't have their basic needs met that impacts me more than, you know, me being sad about well, I
0: can't see my family. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, that kind of transitions into our question around what, if you could, I mean, given what you see on a day-to-day basis and how you interact with the healthcare system and the hospital and your patients, you have a very unique perspective. So can you share with us that if you were able to either wave a magic wand or snap Mm -hmm. your fingers or basically solve any problem and take away all of the barriers that would, you know, prevent you from being able to do so. What problem would you solve and why? There are so many problems I would want to solve. My top two would be
1: healthcare, having universal healthcare and having housing. I think that when you give people healthcare, universal basic healthcare, you give them agency over their health, right? You show them, okay, well, maybe if you, for example, adjust or you take certain, not certain medications, but if you allow them to have primary care where they can get checked up, check their bloods regularly, check their vital signs regularly so that they can see, you know, what they might need to change in their lifestyle, I think that's huge. And you actually will eventually reduce their healthcare needs by keeping up with them in their, whether through an annual physical. So I think that is a huge deal, giving people healthcare, giving them agency over their health to figure out what is best for them. And then I think housing, the problem of you know, eradicating homelessness is huge because people need places to live. They need some a roof over their head. They need a bed. And I think those are that's a basic human need rather than sleeping on the streets and being subject to weather conditions, which puts more people in the hospital, right? Heat emergencies for the homelessness, cold emergencies. Those things send people into the hospital with very serious and even deadly complications. So I think those two things I, in short would be, what I would do, I think, these two things at
3: a very fundamental level, even for a healthy patient, like when you call out just the exposure to heat and cold, go go hand in hand, right? And we've heard this, I think, just once, maybe twice before, just about the importance of shelter to do that and meeting that basic need. I think about you know lowering cost to the healthcare system on the whole and just improving quality. And I think the two things you identified alone that continuity of a primary care relationship combined with a roof over someone's head and a place to rest are are just
1: basics that we need, we need to have in place. It really increases someone's quality of life. They are no longer worried about, okay, well, I need to go to the ER now. I don't have an ER doctor. I need to find a place to stay tonight or tomorrow night. And it's like you have people who are living on the day to day. Well, why not give them the basics so that now they can start thinking about the future, right? You'll have people who are healthier, who have a better attitude and outlook on life, and they can be active citizens of society, right? They can, instead of worrying about my next meal, well, maybe today I can go and volunteer somewhere else, or I can go and just do, contribute to society in different ways, so...
0: Yeah, that would be nice. I I like your wish. I think that both of those, and I think that, you know, we've seen some people trying, I know in the city of San Diego, they started like housing some of the homeless and putting them up in hotels during, you know, to and putting a bunch of, I think, hand-washing stations just so for better population hygiene. Mm-hmm. But it seems like that COVID has sort of Kickstarted that, or at least it, it started to, but I don't know how much of it is actually sticking around as a long-term solution. It would definitely be nice to see more of that, especially it's been showing up for me a lot lately, the universal healthcare, especially mm-hmm. considering how many people have lost their jobs and we tie our, you know, access to health care and insurance through employment and, like, considering the public health crisis, it's like, wow, that really doesn't make much sense. I appreciate your answers. Thank you for sharing them. Of course. One last question before we wrap up. If you have any advice for maybe women who are considering a career in a similar path that you have, either as an aspiring physician or firefighter, EMT, what have you learned that you would want to share with other folks following in your footsteps? Sure, so I was once told good, bad, or indifferent,
1: make a decision, and I think I use that in my day to day because if you don't make the decisions for yourself, other people or systems or groups of people or corporations, they'll start making a decision for you, and it's not going to be the one you want and I think in saying that you don't want to be a spectator in your life. Even if things don't work out, at least you know you, you made a decision about something and you said, today I'm going to do this or tomorrow I'm going to do that. You have to be the number one decision maker in your life. It's something that I work on. It's something that you can work on. Anyone can work on. It's just taking confidence and having confidence, <laughs> learning about confidence, growing in confidence and choosing what you want for you. And choosing what's also not maybe not good for you and
3: replacing that with something else. So Patricia, if people want to get a hold of you, if they want to connect with you, learn more about what you're doing, your field, or just
1: work with you, how can they do that? They can follow me on Twitter. I am at firemedic1, all spelled out. Or they can reach me at my email, which is firemedicpatricia at gmail.com.
0: Well, thank you so much for having this conversation with us today. We are really excited to share it with our listeners and have really enjoyed getting to know you. So truly, we we appreciate you and and thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much
2: for having me. And thank you for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. If you want to know more about us or this guest, check out our website at
0: hitlikeagirlpod.com. While you're at it, if you found value in this episode, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes or simply tell a friend. You can also connect with us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. Thank you to Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting. You can find out more about them at www.chirpybirdinc.com.